within our debt business. It really is quite different from a lot of the other things that we do because it is the long-term servicing business and it's a more transactional business than some of our other businesses. But it also has a lot of really nice synergies with other things that we do in the more core part of our business in that a lot of that agency lending, obviously, it's very multifamily oriented. We do some seniors housing as well. But it's also has an important role that it plays in the affordable housing universe. That's something that we increasingly around our platform in debt, in equity, in agency, in more investment management business, something that we're increasingly focused on. So being a big player in that space is overall helpful to a lot of other parts of our business. Hi, this is Matt Slepin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on June 27th, is an interview with Kathy Marcus, the Chief Operating Officer of PGM's $210 billion AUM real estate practice worldwide and the head of its U.S. equity investment business, which is about $65 billion AUM. She's also the just recently outgoing chair of PREA, so I was pleased to be able to combine the perspective both of the PGM business as well as the broader context across the overall real estate investment management business through the conversation with Kathy. I'm thrilled to have had this conversation with Kathy and to have the perspective of Prudential PGM on the show. Throughout my career, the various real estate businesses within Prudential, now all together under the PGM moniker, have been one of the bellwether names within the business. We so often talk about the fresh names in the business that sometimes we diminish the long-term players who've carefully built incredible reputations and cultures over a very long period of time and who really have plowed the ground on which the institutional real estate business has been built. Pejum is probably the first of those names, and as you will hear on the show, they continue the track record of strong performance and also innovation in the business. One of the themes on Leading Voices is that playing the long game is almost a sacred value and no firm better than Pejum to represent that. Last episode in my introduction, I talked about as a recruiter working with companies at different phases of their growth path. That comment rings true in that long game concept when working with firms like Pejum, whereas recruiters were bringing our perspective and candidates into such an established culture and business platform. We love working with clients all along that business maturity spectrum, whether newer companies climbing the institutional and platform curve, or companies like Pejum that have fully climbed that curve but always are looking for innovation. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you'll find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs in the real estate space, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Enjoy the interview with Kathy Marcus. Thanks for joining. So, Kathy Marcus, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. I've been in the real estate business for a long time. And when I came up in the real estate business, the life company investment shops were the gold standard of real estate investment. Indeed, my wife, Diane Olmsted, grew up at Cigna and Aetna, which is where she learned the business. And of all of those companies, Prudential, a name we're only going to use once on the podcast because you're now PGM, was always the gold standard and the longest standing of those companies. 
And of those companies, the one that's diversified the most into being an investment manager across the board. I think most of that's true. We're going to talk all about it in the conversation today, but I'm thrilled to have you on the show talk about the history of your company and how it's evolved, how it's changed, how it's contributed so much to the industry, what you're up to today, and you and your career path. So a lot to unpack in this conversation. Great. So the place to start, I always ask every guest is just, who are you? Why are we talking? What's your job? Just give your two-minute overview of you and your role, and then we'll jump into all kinds of questions. Sure. So my current role right now is I am the Global Chief Operating Officer of Pigeon Real Estate, and also I'm the head of the U.S. equity business. And that essentially means that I wear two hats, and I go between sort of front office, the middle office, and the back office, and that... While I focus on the U.S. equity business and therefore the U.S. mostly, I also work globally. Uh-huh. And what's the global, just give a sense of the size and scale of what Pijam real estate is and means in all of its sectors, all of its globality. That's not a word. <laughs> But what's it all mean? Sure. So Pigeon Real Estate, right now we have 35 offices in 14 countries. So we really are a very global company and we operate in the US, in Latin America, in Europe, and in Asia. Right now we have about $210 billion of assets under management. And that is across debt and equity. And that's a global number. And just focused on the U.S. equity business, of that 210, 65 billion is invested in the U.S. equity business. Uh And how much is debt? And then what are the different sleeves of capital? We're going to talk mostly about the U.S., but I am curious about all of it. Sure. We have a very large debt business that operates the largest part of it in the senior debt space. And that is primarily concentrated in the U.S., And we also have debt businesses in, they're quite active in Europe, in Australia, and in Japan. And, you know, we are looking to really continue to expand that side of the business. So I mentioned that, you know, the vast majority of our AUM is generally in a senior loan core mortgage situation. However, We do have Core Plus and are in the process of adding an additional value-add type risk-level product in the U.S. And we've had a series of value-add debt funds in the U.K. for quite some time. So we're really, you know, all over the risk spectrum from a debt perspective and also increasingly global. If you think back historically, you mentioned the insurance company legacy here. And, you know, Prudential as an insurance company has been investing in mortgages for, you know, well over a hundred years. And the senior mortgage space has, you know, historically been a very, you know, big life insurance component to it. A lot of the participants have been life insurance companies. And that part of our business continues in some way in that the general account of Prudential does continue to invest in mortgages, primarily in senior mortgages. But even that part of the business has evolved tremendously in recent history in that, you know, that was for many, many years, entirely US focused, very, very traditional senior mortgage investment style. And that's now even the general account portion of our debt business has, you know, become more global 
and you know has i would say wider boundaries in terms of the appetites including agriculture Mm -hmm. And I also know your business on the debt side from an agency lending side where you're also one of the bigger agency lenders. Yes, yes. And that is a really large and important part of our business. And it's, you know, a specialized type business, you know, within our debt business. It really is quite different from a lot of the other things that we do because it is a servicing business and it's a long-term servicing business and it's a more transactional business than some of our other businesses. But it also has a lot of really nice synergies with other things that we do in the more core part of our business in that you know a lot of that agency lending, obviously, it's very multifamily oriented. We do some seniors housing as well. But it also has an important role that it plays in the affordable housing universe. And that's something that we increasingly around our platform in debt and equity in agency in, you know, more investment management business, something that we're increasingly focused on. So being a big player in that space is overall helpful to a lot of other parts of our business. Yeah. So I'm thinking of a couple different points on this. One, and I don't want to get bogged down in, on the debt side, but it was interesting. When I moved to San Francisco 25 years ago and got to know your team in San Francisco, the debt group and the equity group were on separate floors and there was a very strict and formal Chinese wall there. Oh, yes. yes. I think that wall came <laughs> down, but you as COO were on both sides. There's no wall anymore. So the synergies yeah. between the business are important. Right. There is no wall anymore and the groups were combined a couple of years ago. And, you know, it makes so much sense for the groups to be together, even in terms of how the markets have evolved, where, you know, playing up and down the capital stack is even more important these days than ever. And, you know, where we are increasingly becoming more of a third-party investment manager on the debt side, which was already established on the equity side. And so we're now also serving many of the same investors. So it really, you know, makes a lot of sense for us to be integrated as we are now. But I know exactly what you're talking about when I first started, which was almost 25 years ago, and I would go to a San Francisco office quite often, the Diet Coke machine was on the debt floor (laughs) and I was on the equity floor and there was an internal staircase and there was no actual public, private, true Chinese wall. It was more of a... I don't know, an imagined Chinese wall. And I used to fluster some people by going to use the Diet Coke vending machine (laughs) on the deck floor. So what you're saying is very, very accurate. And, you know, I'm not sure that it made a lot of sense back then, but it certainly would not make any sense to have the business bifurcated in that way now, given how the markets have evolved. Right. And the synergies, because you use that word, so the synergies between every part of the capital stack that you get to play on invest wisdom across the other parts of the business, if not business and direct business synergies. Exactly. And I think that was never more apparent than during COVID. And early COVID was right around the time that we combined the businesses. And that was a real lesson in how important it is to be able to, you know, really take the intel that we have as lenders and the intel that we have as equity owners. We also, as part of our U.S. equity business, we have a global real estate securities team that invests in REITs. And so also having the ability to take, you know, private debt knowledge, 
private equity knowledge and public equities knowledge. And combining that, especially when you're in a situation that you know is so uncertain like COVID, or even you know with the interest rate environment, I think things are settling down. But you know we've had periods you know recently where it has been really important to be able to understand the motivations and you know the concerns of different parts of the business. And so I do think that we're very lucky to have all of those different perspectives from debt and equity and the public securities side of the business, not to mention the global nature of our business, not to mention the fact that we invest in pretty much every food group, even the ones that are not traditionally called the major food groups, and also up and down you know, the risk spectrum. So it is definitely an advantage from a scaled perspective. It's got to be. And let's think about that for a minute, because I know as... 99% of the people on your team have a job to do that requires them to have a lot of focus. And so therefore, having all of those synergies is nice to have for them in their day-to-day moment-to-moment, but they don't get that view from way on high. And it sounds like as COO globally, you're able to have that view on high. I'm wondering how you take advantage of the platform to have that view on high and then how you push it down across all the people who are behaving in their silos and their sleeves. Yeah. And I would say that communication is obviously at the heart of that. And, you know, probably the real starting point for the type of cascading of information that you're talking about is in our investment strategy meetings that we have quarterly in each region around the globe. And that produces a house view. And so we end up with these varying house views that as a global company, it makes perfect sense that the house view in Europe might be different than the house view in the US that might be different for the debt house view, it might be different for Asia. But in my position and for you know other people who work globally in investment roles in our firm, having that perspective is really important. And you know, it's actually quite interesting, especially in a market like we see right now where you know, we just approved an office deal in Asia this week in our global investment committee. There's not a lot of that going on in the US right now. I can tell you that for sure, but it helps you to have some perspective around how things are, different things are perceived around the globe. And then also I would say that it was very clear, you know, when, you know, the war in Ukraine first began, how that really disproportionately impacted our continental European business. So it is having a global context is something that I feel very fortunate about in my role. You know, really the majority of my real estate career, I really was just US focused. And that was great. And I knew a lot of markets in the US and that served me well at the time. But I don't think I realized how much I was missing by not having a global perspective and the ability to kind of calibrate as one must as a global investment manager to think about relative risk return around the world and to have the freedom to think of relative risk return around the world. Yeah, it's funny. I just had two images. One is of I heard Barry Sternlich talk at a conference, which we all do frequently, but his view is so from on high and strategic. And I'm also thinking of, you know, the first time the astronauts took a picture of the earth and all of a sudden you saw it and you go, oh my God, that's perspective. That defines perspective. And so I'm thinking, and we'll talk about your career later on, but when you move from the 
national U.S.-centric to that global perspective, there's a learning curve and a, you have to push your mind up to that place. It must be fascinating. Right. There are several learning curves, actually. One is to, especially for many people who came up through this business as practitioners and doers, it is hard to extract yourself from the weeds sometimes because actually the weeds are what you like and that's your comfort zone. So that's certainly part of it is to, you know, I had a mentor at one point who would advise me to think big thoughts And having that discipline of thinking big thoughts and keeping yourself out of the weeds is definitely a learning curve. But even on a more practical basis, you know, I grew up talking about dollars per square foot, not yen per tsubo. And those are even just the lingo. You know, when you've been in a business for 20, 25 years, you think you kind of know all the lingo. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm starting from zero right? What are they talking about? There's different acronyms and there's different terms. And you know, even lease terms are different and the ability to break the lease is different and the way that you renegotiate rent is different. And that's fascinating to me. So I enjoy that. And I do think that it's an advantage. Even if you are only investing in one region, I think it's really an advantage to understand other parts of the world as well. So let's play three of these. And these will all be rabbit holes, not on our script, but I'm curious about it. So if you understand international lease terms, I'm thinking of office, there may be practices in how they look at office that if we brought to the states would open up how tenants and landlords deal with each other in more flexible ways. I'm making this up. But I'm thinking there's things that happen there. Yeah, right. There's something to that. And Now, the office situation has changed quite a bit in recent times, but if you remember, you know, before the, quote, death of the office, people were concerned about, you know, well, it was starting to look like tenants were wanting shorter lease terms. And in the U.S., especially in the big cities, New York, San Francisco, we're used to 10 and 15-year lease terms. And that was where the majority of the value came from in those valuations and the value of those assets. And that's really how the appraisal community and the investment community approaches pricing and you know, duration of cash flows, right? But if you think about it, in Europe, even the best office buildings can have three or five-year lease terms. And that's considered normal. And there isn't a huge discount, whereas in the United States, there's a huge discount. That you know, if you only had a three-year Walt on a big office building, that would be a discount. And that's not the case in Europe. And I think the lesson there was that it can be done, right? You can have an appraisal approach that works with three to five-year leases. You just have to see how it goes. And of course, if you're only doing a three to five-year lease, you're not spending $150 per square foot on TI. So I mean, it's just a different approach. And it there's many different ways to approach the idea of leasing space and occupying space. And you see that around the world. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because it gets back to the point of either synergy or best practices. And once you exercise that best practices, you being PGM, as a main institutional investor, if you exercise that practice in Europe, you can bring it back here and then it can open up some different pathways. Exactly. And another, you know, example, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, is, you know, the importing, if you will, or exporting of traditionally U.S. property types to other regions. And, you know, good examples in the living sectors, you know, number one, multifamily. 
And we know that, you know, the US style multifamily is becoming more popular in other places. You know, London is a good example where even some of the American operators, like Graystar, they're operating in London. And even in Asia, you're starting to see, you know, a little bit more of this, you know, traditionally US truly rental versus investors buying units and then renting them privately. And, you know, we've had that experience and we've been able to export, if you will, our multifamily expertise to other regions, as well as our relationships with, you know, some of these operators. And another good example is in seniors housing, where we have worked on seniors housing in the UK for quite some time. But a lot of that has been in the spirit of taking the US private pay model and exporting that. Now, the private pay is not apples to apples because there are different regulations and different health systems. But just this idea of seniors housing that isn't a nursing home or what in the UK you would call a care home, but that is optional, that has a bar, that has you know a shuffleboard, that has you know fun things for people to do. It's not for sick people. And that's kind of a much more popular construct in the US than it is elsewhere. In some regions, just culturally, it hasn't really been accepted, but it's just becoming more of a reality with aging demographics. So those are our two examples of US-style competencies in running certain types of assets that we've been able to leverage globally. Yeah. And if it's capitalizable here and you can capitalizable it there, then the deal can work and it could pencil. We could bring different ways to do business. Let's pick up on something that you said a minute ago, though, which is you just closed on an office building in Asia. What is the different dynamic that's going on from what return to office, or maybe there never was a not return to office, means there versus what we think it means here right now? Yeah, I mean, broadly in Asia, while you know certain markets like Singapore did have some very strict COVID protocols, and obviously, you know, in China, there were very strict COVID protocols, they were handled very differently than in the US. And people went back to work periodically during COVID when it was safe to do so. Whereas in the US, there was a little bit of just like this almost two-year pause. And so, you know, office occupancy and physical occupancy in many places around the world is back to pre-COVID levels. And the, the US is definitely out of market in that way. I would say London also probably has lower physical occupancy than some other cities. But, you know, Germany is very much back in the office and France is very much back in the office. So the U.S. is definitely lagging in that way. And so I do think that the out-of-favorness, if you will, of office is most pronounced in the U.S. and probably least pronounced in Asia. Mm -hmm. Two questions about that. One, do you think there's some relationship between average living space, square footage in the U.S. versus in these other countries? And then the second is, do you think therefore we're a laggard and we snap back to the way it was fully? Or do you think we snap back to somewhere in between? I think that we're never going to go back to exactly how it was, just because that would imply that everyone is in the office five days a week. And I don't see that happening in the U.S. The reality is that in Europe, Fridays are spotty too. But I do think that, especially with respect to Asia, the fact that people live often in multi-generational families in very, very small spaces, I do think that that had something to do with people wanting 
to go or needing to go back to the office in order to be more productive. But I also think that there's also a cultural difference. And, you know, often like in a place like Japan, if your manager tells you to come back to the office, you're coming back to the office. And it's quite different, you know, in many markets in the US where people have been told to come back to the office three or four days a week, and maybe they're coming back once and they feel quite at liberty to do that. And I do think that is a cultural difference. Yeah. I want to pick up on another strand that you talked about a little bit ago in the conversation, which is affordable housing. And we talk about it all the time on Leading Voices, but we never discuss the issue as a global issue. And so start with it as a global issue, and then we'll talk a little bit about domestic, but then we'll move on. But I'm curious about global. Sure. I mean, affordability of housing, I do think is a global phenomenon, right? A lack of affordability, a lack of supply of affordable housing. That being said, there are certainly places where it has been dealt with much better from a government and regulatory perspective. And I think it's pretty fair to say the U.S. is one of the worst in terms of the size of our country, you know, the housing stock that does exist, and just the fact that we haven't really figured out a great formula to provide the amount of affordability that we need, the sheer numbers of affordable units that we need in this country. And that is an evolving problem that I think is actually just getting worse and worse. And I think there's more awareness now than there used to be around some of the drivers of that. And the fact that, you know, it's not just that developers don't want to build affordable housing because they want to make a lot of money. It's often that The ability to get approvals in many of these cities where affordable housing is really needed. If you think about San Francisco and the Bay Area, they've had a serious affordability issue for a very long time where, you know, people who are teachers, firefighters, policemen have hour and a half commutes. And yet it's one of the most difficult places to build. And, you know, a lot of the same people who are complaining about the fact that there's no affordability, they're really proponents of affordable housing as long as it's not near them. And as long as it's not going to impede their view or as long as it's not going to provide more kids in their school district. So there are so many issues that need to be solved around affordable housing, but it's not just money. Mm -hmm. And so a couple questions on that, and then we're going to move on. But this is one of my favorite subjects, so I'm always happy to talk about this. But you're a business, so you're here to make money doing this. And you said people want to do business in real estate where they make more money. Once I read a Fortune 100, one of those lists of Fortune 100 or Forbes 100, I forget which it was. And I listed the real estate people who were on that list. And with former presidents excluded from that list, I went through the list. And about half of the people who came to that list via real estate came to that list in real estate via doing affordable housing investment. So it is a place where commerce is done. And so I'm wondering about kind of your business opportunity there over the next generation of deals in the States. And then I'm also wondering, you said other countries do it better. Do you have an example of a country where the system works more effectively? Well, I would say, and I'm not an expert at all, but there was a recent article in the New York Times Sunday magazine, which spoke about Vienna in particular as a city 
that has really done an amazing job around public housing. And, you know, housing is essentially calibrated like a percentage of income and it's quality housing. And there's a lot of it. There's still maybe not enough, but there's a lot of it. And people clamor to live in public housing. And you don't hear of very many places where people clamor to live in public housing. So my understanding is that Vienna has done that extremely well. I think that, you know, Germany has done a much better job around keeping, you know, rents in line and not having the same type of unlimited rent growth that you see in some markets. But to your point, there is absolutely money to be made in affordable housing. And there's a huge spectrum. There's capital A affordable, which is government regulated. And then there's just housing that is affordable to normal people, right? And that occurs all over the place. And the industry refers to that as NOAA, naturally occurring affordable housing. And NOAA is extremely important as well, because not everyone is going to qualify for capital A affordable housing, but they still need, there has to be something in the middle. And I think a term that has become more in favor these days is attainable housing, meaning that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a junior investment banker at Goldman Sachs in order to be able to live in a studio apartment by yourself or even a one-bedroom apartment by yourself. And so the attainability of housing is an issue that goes well beyond kind of the government regulatory aspects of affordability. I'll also say that, you know, people often think about a strategy or a fund that invests in affordable housing as being one that would deliver concessionary type returns. And the reality is that you can, we can, we have competitors who do it. You can deliver market returns investing, especially if you're developing affordable housing. Yep. And especially the attainable housing, which it's been on the podcast a lot, but it's most multifamily. Most rentals are workforce housing one way or the other, and you're a large investor in that space. Exactly. Especially in the Southeast. Yeah. So let's take a sharp turn in the conversation and I think you're deeply involved with Priya. You may be the current Priya chair or something like this. I recently finished my reign, if you will. I'm still on the board, but yes, I was uh, the chair for a year. Cool. And so I want to think about, first of all, thank you for doing that because industry leadership really matters. But I use Priya as my word to summarize what I think of as traditional investment managers. And they're different than the private REIT investor now, what some the huge giant firms, Starwood and Blackstone and others do. And then it's different than REITs. They're all different ownership structures. But I think of the PREA world as the ownership structure of investment manager. And again, back to the history of, of PGM, you're one of the core groups in that space. Talk a little bit about those different sleeves and then all the different work that you do, both in debt and equity, and how all those players compare with each other in the same ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the lines are blurring a little bit, if you think about it. And there are more players that are participating in more of those sleeves than ever before. And you see that in particular in the private REIT space or in the non-traded REIT space. That, And you see traditional private equity players who are now sponsoring open-end 
you know, core plus funds and also sponsoring, you know, these more retail oriented, non-traded REIT. And so the universe is blurring a little bit. And to me, some of that is driven by a desire for individual investors to have access to the same types of investment products that have historically only been accessible to large institutional investors. And, and that is a, you know, I think a shift in our country that goes beyond real estate. You see that in the pure private equity space too, where, you know, there are more products for individual, not necessarily mass affluent, but at least high net worth type investors to invest, you know, alongside institutional investors, or at least in very similar strategies. And so I do think that's part of what's driving the blurring of the lines, which I think is also underscored by and and actually, you know, helped by the increased transparency that is available in the real estate industry writ large. When I first started in this business 35 plus years ago, it was very different. Real estate was kind of scary to a lot of people. It was considered, you know, so opaque. It was more opaque. I think that the ascendance of, you know, a very large REIT universe, it raised the bar from a transparency perspective in terms of the types of information that public market participants were demanding and therefore became more, you know, really kind of required from the private market participants. So the transparency in the information that's available, I do think, has really added to liquidity in our space. And it has grown the investable universe tremendously. Mm -hmm. And how does that change how you guys play and where you play? And are you raising that non-institutional capital from high net worth? What's that look like? And then also with that liquidity, does that mean we recover quicker every time there's another crisis, which we're in a mini crisis or maybe a maxi crisis right now? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in terms of our business, like many, you know, we're increasingly accessing the individual investor through a variety of ways. It could be through aggregators, it could be directly, it could be through broker dealers, through RIA channels. So we, like others, are increasingly targeting the individual investor. And we believe that that is where a lot of growth is going to be in the industry. We've seen a tremendous, tremendous amount of growth in the past, call it five to seven years, in our defined contribution platform, real estate defined contribution. And the amount of capital that is being funneled, you know, really on behalf of individual participants into these products is huge. And you can just see that there's a lot of growth as more and more people are planning for retirement through, you know, defined contribution plans versus defined benefit plans. Uh-huh. Does that change churn? Does it change closed-end funds that creates churn in sales of properties? And as an investor with AUM, do you care? Do you benefit hugely from churn or ultimately stability might be a better thing for your business model or an equal thing for your business model? Yeah, I think it's nice to have a combination of both, right? If you think about, you know, the benefits of an open-end product is obviously the liquidity to the investors and the long-term 
visibility, the fact that you never have a gun to your head to do anything. The advantage of a closed-end product is that you can sit on your money until it's a really good time to deploy it. So to be a closed-end fund right now with a lot of capital to deploy that you could sit on for the next 6 to 12 months, that would be ideal and quite different than the dynamic of an open-end fund. So that's from an investment perspective. From a running a business perspective, it's good to have both because the open-end funds are large. They have scale. There's tremendous stability. I mean, it's not an accident that lots of new participants have gotten into the core plus open-end fund space. It can be a very scalable, very profitable business. However, you know, you can have outflows and it is nice to have the closed-end fund capital too, because once you raise that, you have it and you know you can deploy it into the best market conditions. Whereas often in an open-end fund, in the best market conditions, you have executes. Mm-hmm. And then talk about the synergy between that. We started this part of the conversation, but I'm curious about open and closed-end funds on the debt side. How does that then flow in? And it does feel at this moment in time, debt's on the ascendant. It's a better investment to be making. You could be active in these times where you're less active on the equity side. Sure. From our perspective, there are tremendous opportunities for really great risk-adjusted returns in debt right now. And, and really up and down the spectrum from you know, senior to value-add. In terms of you know, open-end, closed-end, in terms of our platform, we tend to do core, core plus in open-end formats for debt and then value-add in closed-end formats. And that really, again, it just has to do with the risk that you're taking, really what the IRR targets, et cetera. And and different investors, some investors really don't understand the idea of value-add strategy, debt or equity in an open-end format. We actually have an open-end US value-add fund in our equity business. And it's unusual in the market to have that. And generally, the people who are in that product are people who, you know, they value having that format, that it is targeting similar returns as a closed-end value-add fund. It raises capital in a similar way, but yet it does have that liquidity. You're not locked in for 7 to 10 years. But that's an unusual product. Mm-hmm. And so talk about running your business and what it means from this 10,000-foot COO role that we talked about before and having all of those different flavors of capital. So the flavors allow you to bring a lot of dough in to do a lot of different things, each of which is targeted. Two questions at once. How do you manage all of that? And then the second thing is, in this moment, how do you manage all of that? Because this moment has some attributes to it that we should talk about. Yes. So generally, I think it's really important to have a disciplined, well-articulated product architecture and to have a vision of what your product architecture should be globally and then to go from there versus you know having like the product du jour. Like, let's have this kind of fund, right? Versus, you know, our approach has been much more of a big picture strategic approach of you know, we want in every region of the world to have an open-end funded scale, a closed-end alpha series, something special like seniors housing. We want debt. We want equity. That is our vision versus just kind of 
doing things based on, you know, oh, today it sounds like a really good idea to launch a logistics in Mexico fund, right? Versus having that as your strategy. I am going to have a product that takes advantage of, you know, nearshoring and friendshoring. And that I think when you have a large global platform, maintaining that discipline so that you don't end up with product proliferation and so that you don't end up trying to be a jack of all trades. And from an operational perspective, those people who work on the operational side of the business, they understand the fact that you launch a fund, it doesn't reach scale. You're dealing with a subscale fund for 10 years in terms of you had invested, then you have to wind it down. And I mean, it's a commitment to launch a product. And so you want something that has you know scale and durability to it and that like, if you don't intend to have a fund two, you shouldn't be launching fund one, right? And that's the way that we have really approached it. It's interesting because I there's a different mandate when you've been around for 50 years, whatever the number is, and you're going to be here in 50 years and you know that versus you're trying to get to the top tier or you're trying to get started. So those mandates are the answer to the question that you just answered would be the opposite for those firms who are trying to attain that position. Exactly. And it's clear that a platform like ours, we don't have to be as reactive, right? We can be a bit more strategic in what we want long-term in terms of our platform and our product architecture to be. I mean, our core open-end fund in the U.S. was launched in 1970. And our core plus open-end fund in the U.S. was launched in 1980. So we are operating with that level of historical context that when you create a product, you want to create a product that is durable and flexible and will stand the test of time. Right. So how do you then manage this and manage your team and manage your relationships to be innovative and to take advantage of that size and scale, right? There's a balancing act in all of that. So talk a little bit about that. People are often surprised by how innovative we are because we are, from a branding perspective, right? We're the rock. We've been around forever. And, you know, historically speaking, we've done a lot of core equity investing and core mortgage lending. But we are a very innovative company, even going back when our core open-end fund was launched in 1970. It was the first one. And our Core Plus Open End Fund, that was the first Core Plus. People weren't even entirely sure what Core Plus was in those days. So we have a history of being very innovative. We've had a close-end seniors housing platform in the United States for more than 20 years. We were very early movers into some of the alternatives, including self-storage in the late 1990s, manufactured housing, student housing. We have done a lot of very innovative things. We've been in Europe and Asia for a lot longer than many people. And our FIBRA, which is essentially like a REIT in Mexico, um, that's all industrial assets, that is one of the first, right? I mean, you know, the big FIBRA is called FIBRA Uno. We're called Terrafina. But if we had a number, we'd be FIBRA dose, right? So we've done, you know, 
quite a bit of very innovative things. And we continue. And some of the things that I think are you know really exciting about our platform right now are around data and leveraging our data that we have. Again, you know, we have a 53-year-old fund. We have quarterly appraisals for decades and decades. We have lots and lots of data. And being able to harness that to, you know, really have better outcomes for our investors is one of our major goals. And we're investing a tremendous amount of money in terms of capital, talent, actual, you know, software and cloud capabilities into our data platform and have some very exciting partnerships with universities in the UK and in the US. And we have some, you know, great relationships and partnerships with venture capital firms that has given us, you know, really a front row seat to a lot of the evolution in prop tech. And in particular, in technology that relates to ESG in real estate. So the vast majority of our innovation these days is focused on on technology, on data, eventually on artificial intelligence and machine learning, and really very focused on how one uses technology to upgrade assets from an ESG perspective. Uh So let's unpack a few of those things because they're obviously interesting. How much of the data and information you're able to pull is because you've been around so long and therefore you have longitudinal data about the performance of real estate? Because you kind of started the track on data there. Most folks are talking about the data within their portfolio of existing assets and tenants and behaviors is so huge that they're able to take advantage of that. But two different concepts. And then I want to talk about ESG with that environmental, especially as well. But really, I would say, you know, in terms of the two different concepts around data, we have both. So, you know, we have a very large existing portfolio. We have insights as a lender. We have insights as an equity investor. We have insights as a global REIT manager. So we have lots of different insights that are available to us, but it's obviously a lot of work to get everything you know, onto a cloud-based data platform that is fed by a variety of systems and service providers around the world, and then to you know, get that into some kind of an algorithm, right? It's a lot, and it's a heavy lift, and it's a lot to do. But it is, I think, we, the real estate industry, have been a laggard in terms of you know, a lot of the data strategies and investment I can say, you know, as someone who's been here for a long time, I would say that our firm, as well as the industry in general, that we have generally underinvested in data and technology. And, you know, many old school, like myself, real estate investors think of, you know, their gut as it's going to outperform Watson all day long. Maybe we all need to just put that aside a little bit and think of whether, you know, technology can help us to build conviction. It doesn't mean that that gut instinct isn't there, but there's a fair amount of hubris, I think, among the real estate investing community. And that might have been why I don't think the industry embraced some of these concepts as early as maybe some consumer businesses have. Right. 
So a couple different thoughts here. One is let's break the investment thesis part of technology and information away from the consumer and behavioral stuff. And on the investment stuff, interesting, 25 years ago, I ran a group called the Multifamily Housing Institute, which was a apartment industry effort to create a database of transparency in performance of apartment buildings. And this was right before the reach. So this was 93-4. And data, as you said, was 100% opaque. No one knew anything. Yeah. And we were too early because the technology didn't exist. Even if everyone could share their data, it wouldn't have worked. Right. It was beyond, and I wasn't a technologist. But now we can not easily do this. Even now it's hard. But those investment insights are huge. And I'm assuming at the end of the day with giant players and that much information, the ability to make better decisions, that ultimately brings the cost of capital down. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that a great example and actually a sort of problem statement that we use for a lot of our innovation type thinking and some of the problem statements that we're working on, I think of, and just from the U.S. perspective, If you think about Nashville 10 years ago, and you think about Nashville now, what signals do we wish we had seen 10 years ago that would have given us the conviction to buy every available land plot in Nashville, right? And that's the type of thing that 10 years ago wouldn't really have been possible. I mean, to actually have all that unstructured data and figure it out, but it is possible today. And it's going to be increasingly possible moving forward. So I do think that those insights are very important in terms of running a business. But as important is the fact that our investors are demanding more and more transparency and more and more insights of their own. And I think that that is the wave of the future. Our platform has always had a bias toward transparency. It's something that we're very proud of and it's just in our DNA. We've always been extremely transparent and we're even having a hard time keeping up with how much data our investors want. And increasingly, investors want self-serve kind of data. And that is something that, you know, from a technology perspective, obviously there are privacy issues and we're working through all of that, but that's just the way that our industry is moving. That's the direction of travel. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that we may be mashing up two concepts. I think investors want access to reporting every day all the time versus to your data that you're figuring out what to do with. But maybe they're asking for access to your data and your intelligence as well as reporting. Yes, there's definitely investors who they want to benefit from the data that we have. And you have to think about the fact that many investors who invest in funds are also direct investors. So they're also looking for that type of information, or they might just want to say, the product that I'm invested in with Pigeon Real Estate, I'd like to be able to search by all the CBD office buildings and see what the cap rate is in the valuation. Now, we're not at a point yet that we can readily share that publicly, but that is the path of travel. That is what investors are increasingly going to want. I mean, the days of an investor calling and saying, you know, my board has asked me a question 
and I need to answer it by the next board meeting. So you have a month to figure this out. Those days are over, right? You know, the investor calls and says, my board asked me a question and I need to send an email in five hours. So, I mean, just the pressures on our investors to answer questions, it's just all, you know, kind of a domino effect. Yeah. So let me ask you some more questions about this. It's really interesting because you said the path of travel and where things are going. And I'm wondering if that means that if I'm an investor with PGM in one of your funds or in multiple funds, then I'm a partner in your ecosystem and it gets really sticky to use current or different language. And then once they're in that ecosystem with you, then providing that data helps make that stickier. And I'm wondering their access to that data for you versus with CBRE, because they're probably in their ecosystem, everyone has to be. Yeah, I think everyone likes to get a variety of different insights. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of our platform is our investment research team. And many of our investors, and in fact, even the developer operators that we work with, they really like to hear from our investment research team. They like to meet with them. They will, you know, some of our clients will call our investment research team directly and just say, what do you think about X? Or do you have a paper on Y? And that is sort of a part of the value proposition of working with such a big firm that we have a global research team. It's interesting because I think it's also one of the hallmarks of the what I call the, again, using the same term, the PREA world, because the PREA world always valued research as a part of it. The second thing you just raised, which is really an interesting one, is we've been talking a lot from the investor's standpoint. I'm thinking of the investors, I'm thinking of your team, but your ecosystem also includes ongoing partners. And I know tons of developers who do business with you, and you're a preferred provider of equity joint venture capital, you're good to deal with. They know you're going to be there. They know that it's a long-term relationship. So since you're going to do another deal, they'll treat you better, you'll treat them better. Yeah. And maybe that research is also part of the ecosystem. Yeah, our mantra has always been that we're a consistent, reliable source of capital. And we have you know developers that we have done business with for decades. And actually where we see generational handoffs and on our side and on their side. So we do have these, you know, very long-standing relationships. It is a very important part of our value proposition to our investors. We invest a tremendous amount of effort into cultivating our partner and operator relationships. And, you know, we recognize the importance, especially it's always been important to us, but it's even more important when you're investing in some of these alternative type assets where the operating leverage is high and the required knowledge, specialized knowledge is really, really important. And you see that in especially seniors housing. Obviously, your operator makes or breaks your deal in seniors housing. And so we value those relationships and we invest quite a bit in them. So, so many topics keep coming up in this conversation. One of the things that you mentioned before is the food groups versus the non-food groups. Come back to how much of your investing is in the food groups and the specialty asset classes. And one interesting thing we've had in the podcast, and I didn't know this, Chris Hartung from Berkeley and a REIT investor said 60% of the NAREIT index are not 
the four asset classes. And I had no idea. I don't know if that's if you're a 60-40 as well, but what's your percentage in specialty assets? I couldn't tell you our percentage of alternatives across the platform. But within most of our products, it's an increasing percentage. And when people ask as office values go down and or maybe office becomes a lesser allocation than it has been historically, which actually it already has become that, you know, how do those allocations shift? And in our mind, they generally shift toward the alternatives. They shift toward particularly the alternatives we really like are in the living sectors and things like seniors housing, things like student housing. You know, our European platform has done some, you know, glamping slash, you know, camping type deals. And those are very appealing. And I think that when you look at some of the ways that we are playing in the alternative space, there is an affordability overlay there as well. I think, you know, the camping glamping is definitely that from a vacation and hospitality perspective. Manufactured housing is that in particular, we tend to focus on age-restricted manufactured housing, which is really a way to play in the more affordable space in the seniors demographic versus, you know, traditional assisted living or memory care. Uh-huh. And you keep talking about affordability. I'm wondering if affordability deals in a place that also has a high degree of predictability and therefore there's the concept of risk-adjusted returns are more core-like. And we always thought core was a beautiful office building, not what looks like medium-scale apartment building, but actually one's more core than the other. It's not what we used to think it was. Absolutely. I mean, I will argue all day long that self-storage can be more core than any other asset because you have a very consistent income stream. You have rents that are mark-to-market you know, very, very quickly. You have very, very low capex. And core, I think, decades ago was defined... You know, It didn't even include multifamily initially, right? It was office, you know, retail, maybe industrial. And industrial was considered so boring that even a lot of the core players didn't want to invest in industrial. So things change. Things change quite a bit. And then I would say there are still some markets, maybe a little bit in Europe, where core is maybe more defined by location. It's a core location or it's not a core location by quality, by age. I think that, and we think very broadly, that core is really about the durability of the cash flow. And it's not just the durability of your income stream, it's the durability of your cash flow. And therefore, something that is very low CapEx and very consistent income, self-storage, manufactured housing, student housing, where you have the credit of the parents. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a different way of thinking about, you know, if core is synonymous with quality cash flows, then what is it that creates quality cash flows? And I do think that this is a way that we've been thinking since the late 90s, early 2000s. But I do think that the industry is evidencing itself as increasingly thinking about durability of income and cash flows in the way that credit is becoming, some of the blurry lines among credit investors are coming down. And you know, if you think about how many people describe their debt platforms these days in real estate, they call it a credit platform. And five years ago, that was not the case, right? It was, this is my mortgage platform. This is my NES platform. Now it's credit. And I think that is 
showing a blurring of the lines even between asset classes that in certain types of asset-backed credit, people are less concerned about what the asset is and more concerned about really what the true credit is. What is the likelihood that I'm going to get the yield that I think I'm going to get? And I think that that can actually also be applied to real estate in general and this concept of what is core, what are the, quote, accepted food groups. And you know, if you think about the NARI and your example around the 60%, that's an incredibly diverse universe that goes well beyond where many people play in the private markets, including cell towers and prisons and you know all sorts of things that you know Pigeon Real Estate is not investing in. But it shows you the possibilities. And even the fact that you know many people in our industry talk about instead of real estate, they talk about real assets now and you know can incorporate infrastructure, agricultural, agriculture, digital infrastructure data centers, lots of things that are not in the historic food groups. Yep. It's interesting. The way you and I kind of know each other is through our mutual friend, Joe Margolis at Extra Space. And you were heroes because you, through my wife, Diane, brought the first capital to Extra Space when they had like 15 properties and you were willing to invest in them. And now they're the either biggest or second biggest REIT in that space. Yes, yeah. And Joe, of course, was with you. So he was the innovator early in his career with you figuring this out. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, incubator is a great word because we use that term a lot in that really our approach is to incubate new strategies more in our value-add products. And then we kind of learn the ropes. Like manufactured housing is a great example where we started doing that in our value-add open-end U.S. fund. And now we're doing it in our core fund. Because now we get it and we know who the right operators are. And you know, you have that outsized return early in the life cycle of a new product type. And then, you know, it becomes a little bit less exotic and then the returns are core and, and you feel really good about your expertise in that sector, and then you feel it's appropriate for a core fund. And that's very much how we approach things. Yeah. So We're going to wrap up in about 10 minutes, so we're going to have to speed date on a couple of topics here that are glaringly missing, one of which has come up several times, which is ESG, and for me, it's carbon. And if you look where the puck is going, then the future suggests there may be places you want to invest and don't invest, but how do you look forward in a 20-year time horizon and say, yeah, we can invest there because it's going to be okay from a carbon standpoint? and a sustainability standpoint? It's very difficult to do in that things are changing so rapidly. Regulations are changing. And that's one of the most challenging aspects is to try to anticipate where the regulatory puck is going. And, you know, if you look in the UK, you know, some huge percentage of the office buildings are not going to be leasable in the near future, in the future that is within an investment horizon. Because of regulation, not sea level rise. Exactly, because of regulation. And you see that in New York in terms of you know the penalties that are going to be imposed on buildings. So in terms of, do I believe that investors will become less coastally oriented? I actually don't. I think that people will continue to be coastally oriented, but that there will be regulation and practices that make that more sustainable 
you know, as an example, in Singapore, the building codes essentially have lifted, the buildings have to be lifted. And, you know, there's lots of similar things going on. Another, you know, interesting lens through which to choose markets is to focus on markets where the local government is spending time and resources on climate mitigation. Because people who are not spending any time on climate mitigation or not putting any effort into it, it's probably not going to turn out that well longer term. So, And also, they're going to regulate in 10 years and you can't predict it. So those who are ahead of the curve are more predictable. Exactly. Exactly. And again, it doesn't mean that there's no opportunity in non-sustainable assets. We actually think that one of the great opportunities and actually a way in which we can contribute more broadly is to buy buildings that are not sustainable and make them more sustainable. And that is just now part of our underwriting and our due diligence. We're, We're getting climate reports. We're getting what we call green PCAs. It's a sustainability oriented property condition assessment. And so we have like a long term capital plan that incorporates um, everything that we would need to do from a sustainability perspective to stay ahead of the game. So we think there's a lot of opportunity in making assets more sustainable. And in particular, in Europe, investors are only interested in very, very ESG-compliant and ESG-forward assets. And there's a huge opportunity there to continue doing that with some of the older stock. So if you're buying older stock, and learning the technology of how to bring them up to code for sustainability purposes. We talked about this early in the podcast. If you're exercising those muscles in Europe, which is ahead of the curve, we can bring those same in both investment approaches and then your partner approaches to be able to do that here in the States, which is inevitable. It absolutely is. And obviously there's a lot of political noise and cultural noise around that right now. But it is inevitable. And the good thing with real estate is that you don't have to you know, choose a side in sort of the political or cultural wars because at the end of the day, everything that has to do with sustainability is just good for the bottom line in real estate. You reduce your energy costs, you reduce your water usage, you, know, you make your building more efficient, you have better systems, you have a building with an ESG and wellness certification, you're going to get higher rents. I mean, it's just math in real estate. So everything that we do from a sustainability perspective is completely focused toward adding value. Yeah, it's interesting. In August, for the last two years, we're doing it in next month. Our both podcasts in the month of August on Leading Voices deals with sustainability and carbon issues. I live in Sonoma County where we could burn tomorrow. So I think about this more physically than other people think about it. But I assume people are socially motivated who do this. And actually, I think people who are more investment than socially motivated have more credibility in our business because it's an investment thesis, not a religion and a mission and a goal that way. It is. And I think it's really important to not force people to choose a camp. And I think sometimes people are stereotyped into being in one camp or the other. And I can tell you, we have a sustainable investing platform within Pigeon Real Estate. And within that platform, you have people who are very passionate about everything, about the E, the S, and the G. They're passionate about affordable housing. They're passionate about climate. But they're also good investors. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think it's really important to remember that. I feel like sometimes there's still 
I don't want to say a stigma, but there's an assumption that, quote, impact-related investing is concessionary in nature. And it can be. There are strategies that are concessionary, but it certainly doesn't have to be. And one can do well and do good at the same time. You're not one or the other. Absolutely true. So Leading Voices started as a podcast about people's career journeys. We now have about five minutes left in this conversation. So we're going to hear your career journey in five minutes, and I don't know how to distill that. But question is, maybe how did you get into real estate? What interested you in real estate? How did you get to PGM Prudential early or mid-career? And then advice on how you've worked your way through a very, very large organization to the top of that organization. Sure. So I was a real estate finance undergraduate major. So I've never done anything else. And people often ask me how I knew at such a young age that I wanted to be in real estate. And I can't say that I really knew. I just knew I wanted to do something in business. I was in a business school And I always like the tangibility of real estate. I like the built environment. I'm interested in architecture. And I appreciate the built environment. I appreciate space. And so I never looked back. And I have never done anything other than real estate. I got a master's in real estate investment and development. I had a very traditional path, the typical analyst path when I was young. And I was very, very fortunate in retrospect to hit kind of the early 90s when I did. I had a couple of years of experience, but I was still at a place that I could pivot. I started on the equity side of the business. I moved over to debt and I did loan workouts and dispositions of REO through the RTC days. And that was just a pivotal time in my career. I learned like 20 years worth of stuff in five or six years. And it was just really fun and really intense, but it was great. And then I did, I ended up at Prudential. It was Prudential Real Estate Investors at the time when I was in my early 30s. And I've been there ever since. So it'll be 25 years in September. And I worked in various functions in transactions, in portfolio management, and then moved over to the COO role, I guess about seven or eight years ago, and now have been working globally and both in investment and on the operational side of the business, which has really been tremendous. It was unexpected to me how much I have enjoyed the COO role and the idea of you know operating a best-in-class platform and you know having sort of the functional expertise and the same level of excellence on the functional side of the business as we have on the investment side of the business. And I do think that that is the key to a great global large platform in real estate asset management is to have an you know equal excellence and equal appreciation for what happens in the front of the house versus what happens, you know, quote, in the back of the house. And that to me is really one of the great benefits and advantages that we have as a platform. And I think before you had the COO role, you were portfolio manager of one of the major funds? I was, yes. I worked on our flagship fund, which is our core open and US fund. I worked on it for over 10 years and I was a senior portfolio manager for my last couple of years. And that was a great run too. I was there during the run-up to the GFC, during the GFC, and then coming out of the GFC. So I saw it all during that time. 
and the experience that I think of portfolio managers, and I so admire that role, and I talk with my clients about that role, often you're essentially the CEO of a REIT. It's like the same as a REIT, but you have multiple asset classes instead of a unified asset class. Exactly. It's not vertically integrated, but you're managing from the investor side to the investment side, to the workout side, to the disposition side. Right. You get to do a little bit of everything. And that was really what I enjoyed the most about portfolio management is you, a fund, especially a large fund, it has a rhythm throughout the year. And it's definitely, there's never a dull moment in being a portfolio manager. That's a wonderful pathway to get there. We've talked a lot about your role as COO, so we're going to leave it there. The last question on leading voices is always your advice to a young person getting into the real estate business. My advice is very consistent, which is do a little bit of everything when you're a junior person. I know a lot of people like to specialize. And at some point, maybe it's a good idea to specialize. But if you start off working in debt, go work in equity. If you start off working in multifamily, go work in office. Just get as much experience as you can because if you want to ultimately be a portfolio manager or some other role that does require a broad set of experiences and knowledge, it's the best path. And even if you decide, you know, I just want to do retail acquisitions my entire career, that's great. Take 10 years and go do something else for to have two stints of five doing something else because you're going to be a better Whatever you ultimately specialize in, you're going to be better at it if you've done other things and you bring that experience and that perspective. It's interesting. So I'll push on that a little bit. The most logical part of that is if you want to get to the top, you want to have all of those varied experiences, which we've talked about through this conversation. To me, it's finding your place. And if you think you're going to find your place, you're going to go to X early in your career, specialize, and it's going to work you're probably wrong. So I like to see people trying lots of different things. And then when it sticks, stick. Exactly. And if they're happy being there, stay there. Because it also, for people who are really, really good in a functional area, be, you know, multifamily investment sales, takes 10 years to hit it. And then once you hit it, you're there. And it's incredibly satisfying as a career. Right. But think about that example. If you spent two years doing multifamily debt, Okay, you're going to be a better multifamily investment salesperson just True. because of those two years that you did debt. So it's not always easy to navigate, but I do think that the most well rounded real estate professionals, if you look at the backgrounds, generally have done a lot of different things. It's true. The other thing is that people don't know what the other sectors are. So if you're a retail person and you've only done retail, then you don't know how you stack up against the other asset classes where your investors are comparing you to. So the broader experience does always make you wiser and give perspective. Exactly. Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation, Kathy. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them and add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. 
And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at crgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.